Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Larry, for your testimony. We have so many great stories over the last several weeks of this midterm emphasis called Flourish. God's doing some things in people's lives, and they're flourishing in faith and spiritually growing, and it's all centered around God's work in us through this Multiply Generosity Initiative. We're just about halfway through. Hey, would you help me one more time welcome our third, fourth, and fifth graders, all their life group teachers, volunteers, Sunday school teachers. Thanks to moms and dads for making this possible. And look at here, I got a whole new congregation in the center, those who were displaced from that section, and they're smiling and happy to be here, and thanks for your flexibility. I'll tell you, it's worth it today to see all these smiling faces and to have the kids here with us in our multi-generational worship today. I want to ask you to do two things as we get started for the message, and that is open your Bible to Acts chapter 9 and find this card in your worship folder. Uh, You've seen one each week. You probably have one, I hope you do already, in a prominent place where you've been praying and considering uh, what perhaps God would lead you to do as your next step in this multiplied journey of faith. I want to tell you that next week's going to be our very special Commitment Sunday as this midpoint uh, draws to a close. As we enter the second half, we're going to come out of the locker room. We're going to come out committed. We're going to come out passionate. We're going to come out give our very best boys and girls. Now, that's my locker room talk. That's the extent of it. So next Sunday, uh, we'll have a great and wonderful special time of celebration as well as commitment. I want to give you a week's heads up on this card, though, and just very quickly while we're getting settled, walk you through what the uh, opportunities are for this card. You'll notice, and we'll show you on the screens as well as we walk through it, there are really two larger categories. The first category is if you're new to Multiply. Meaning perhaps you weren't here last year, or you've come in this last year, or you were here in last year, uh, but you weren't able or the time for whatever reason couldn't get engaged and make a commitment to multiply. We want to invite you, everyone, all of us, 100% of us, to engage in this multiply journey. And to do that, you would be making a 12-month, not 24, but 12 months, because that's the journey now, we're halfway through, 12-month commitment to multiply. And I I know what you're thinking. Well, I can give. I don't have to commit. Let me just tell you something. God honors commitment. You see this right here? You see this on my finger? What do y'all know this is? This is a commitment. (laughs) This is not a ring. This is a symbol of my commitment. And this is how my wife knows I'm committed to her. And it's a daily reminder that I am officially committed to her. And so uh, the card is just simply a statement of our commitment. It helps the church in its planning But more than that, it helps us in our praying and preparation and our stretching and giving. So one year, 12-month commitment, if you didn't make one, one year ago. Now the second category you'll notice here are two options. And these are for folks who made a commitment to multiply last year. So you're in. And yes, we're asking everyone, 100% of us, to reaffirm that commitment for this next year. So we'll be asking for everyone, whether you did one a year ago or not, to put in a commitment card this year for the next 12 months. And within that, there are two options you'll see. The first is simply to say, here was my two-year commitment one year ago, and put that number in the middle box that you have there. But then you have two options, and the first would be this, I confirm my commitment to finish strong. Perhaps you've hit some 
different circumstances, some troubling times. Maybe you haven't gotten to 50% yet. Maybe you hadn't even started yet, but you made that commitment because you felt led of the Lord to do it. This is a chance to say, God, I'm still in, I'm still engaged, I'm still committed, and I'm going to work very hard in your spirit and by your power to finish strong. And that's really important that we have the same faith to finish that we had when we started this journey of faith. Now, to see, the second option there for you under that category is check the box to increase my, uh, above my two-year commitment, and that number would go in the third box. And what that is is essentially this, is that some of us made a commitment. Perhaps it was a stretch. It required faith and obedience, no question. But circumstances may have changed for you, and you might have discovered that God blessed you in an unusual way, or it might be that uh, you found that number wasn't quite as difficult or as challenging as you thought it might be initially. And you want to stay engaged, so you want to keep stretching. This is not just about getting to the halfway point. This is about stretching and growing and reaching for all God has for us for this entire initiative of two years. So some folks are going to say, you know, like I heard a college girl say, she said, I I put it on automatic draft so it comes out every pay period. And you know what? I didn't even miss it. And then she said, and that bothered me. Because I really had a sense that God had called me to stretch. And I knew that if I didn't even miss what I was giving, I probably wasn't giving to the degree that would honor and please God by stretching my faith. So if you're in that category, then you would just put your new to your commitment in that second box. Now that's next Sunday now, and I wanted to walk you through that. Of course, the information there, we're going to have a great time of worship. We're going to have a great time of, great time of preaching. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have a great time anyway. Uh, And and then we're going to bring our cards, just like we did one year ago, in commitment all over this worship center and really re-up in a strong way for this next year, for the second half, for the third quarter's coming of our Multiplied Generosity Initiative. And we have a place in Scripture today that I want to take you to that I really think will encourage us in preparation for next week. It's Acts chapter 9. By now you found it. And you'll remember last week we talked about Saul of Tarsus, who held the coats of those who killed the church's first deacon martyr. And through that affirmation and approval, uh, an all-out assault broke out on the church and every follower of Jesus. And Saul, in fact, made it his personal business to destroy the church and every follower of Jesus. That was his mission, to rid the world of Christianity before it could ever take root. But you know he failed. Hold on. You know he failed. And the church flourished anyway. And still flourishing to this day. And maybe you're familiar with Saul's story. You know what happened, right? On his way to Damascus to terrorize the church and every Christian living there, Jesus met him on the way. He had a life-changing experience, a transformative event that turned him around from the persecutor of the church to a champion for the church. This Saul of Tarsus would become Paul the Apostle who would write two-thirds of the New Testament, who would be an evangelist, church planner, missionary to the nations, and open the door to the Gentiles, that would be most of us in this room today, to come to faith and to come into the relationship with Jesus that we share and enjoy today. That's next week. But today, I want us to notice somebody in this story that's too easily and too often, I suppose, overlooked. You see, in this whole transformation story of this incredible individual, Paul the Apostle, we have a disciple known as Ananias. 
right in the very middle of the story. He very likely would have been one of Saul's victims because he was where Saul was going. And he was a Christian there, a disciple there. And sure enough, Saul would have put his hands on Ananias and torn him apart if he could. But you know how this works. God turns this whole story around by His grace. And the rest, as they say, is 2,000 years of church history. Listen to what happened in this story. Verse 10, Acts chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Father, bless your word, and thank you for the privilege to look deeply into the life of one we might miss if we aren't careful. But teach us today, and help us connect today with this disciple named Ananias. It may be difficult, folks, for us to identify with somebody like Paul. Paul, the apostle. Paul, the author, the evangelist, the missionary. That's okay. Those bigger-than-life features and figures are sort of hard for us everyday folks to identify with. And that's okay. That's really okay. After all, there was only one Paul. Just like there was only one Martin Luther of the Reformation or, or William Carey and David Livingston of the missionary movement or of Lottie Moon of Southern Baptist fame. There's only one Billy Graham, only one, and thank God for every one of them. But let me tell you something else that's true. While you and I will never be one of them, you and I are the only one of us there will ever be. Let me say that again. You and I, we, well, we're the only ones who will ever be who we are. There's only one of you. There's only one of me. You may say hallelujah. There's only one of us, and you're the only one in the world in all of the history of the world. You're it. You're the only one. Hold up one finger for me. Boys and girls, would you have one finger for me? I am the only one. Do that for me. I am the only one of me. Try that again. Watch this. I am the only one of me there will ever be. Be. I just totally made that wink finger wagon thing up, right? I'm it. You're it. We're it. There'll never be another one of you. The question is this. If you're the only one of you, 
Then only you can do what only you can do. And what in the world is it that only you can do? I want to give you a quick list, if you will. Take notes. You have your little journal. We're writing in those each week. It's almost our last week in this, so let me give you this. First, be available. Be available. That's where it all starts, really. That's where it starts in verse 10 of this chapter we just read. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. That's all we know of him. Except that the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, called his name. Called his name. Called his name. So from the apostles' preaching, which we are very admiring of, and from the ministry of the church deacons and then their ministry evangelism that led to the gospel going into all Judea and then into Samaria, to Philip and Stephen, the church's first martyr. We're amazed at those stories of those bigger-than-life champions of faith. Now we meet somebody who is a disciple in some place called Damascus, and his name's Ananias, and he drops into the Bible here, sort of out of obscurity and into time and space and into part of his story we meet him here and he plays what he might have considered what others might say was a really small part in this story he's certainly not Paul and he'll never be Paul he's not an apostle he's not even a deacon he's just a follower of Jesus but here's what we know he did he did what only he could do he played his role and here's how it started Ananias Yes, Lord. Here am I, Lord. I'm here. That very response is the statement of his availability. It doesn't speak to his ability, but it does reveal his availability. And when God calls his name, and by the way, some of us may think that God knows our name in the universal sort of theological sense. And we may have some Bible verses, you know, to quote, like, the Lord knows the very hair on my head, the number therein. We have a, but did you ever stop and think, I mean, boil this down, get really real, very practical, and consider this, that God doesn't just know everyone's name. He knows your name. He knows your name. He knows my name. He knows every one of your names. And when he calls our name, the first and right answer is, yes, Lord, I'm here. That's a statement of his availability. Here's the principle that God is not nearly as interested in our ability as he is in our availability. It's what we have to make available to him that he then can take and multiply. I'm thinking of the boy with the lunch. Do you remember? Uh, this little fella, he, he thought ahead. He was a planner and a preparer, or at least maybe his mom or dad was. He, he showed up at this big tent meeting revival in Galilee with a lunch. And thousands of other men and women, boys and girls, came with nothing, and they were hungry. And the disciples came to Jesus and they said, hey, we got to let these people go because they're going to starve to death out here in this, this place. There's, just, there's no Whataburger here. You know, there's, there's no KFC. You can't order pizza. How are we going to feed all these people? Send them away. And Jesus said, you feed them. And they said, with what? And Jesus said, well, what do you have? The right answer would be next to Nothing. 
well, except there is this one little fellow with this one little lunch. It's not much. It's just a few pieces of fish and, and some pieces of bread, some loaves. And Jesus said, that'll do. Bring it to me. And Jesus took that not much. And he blessed it and he began to break it. And as he broke it, he multiplied it. And do you remember the story? He fed thousands of people and had baskets left over. We don't even know that little guy's name, but God does. We would look at his lunch, even in a crowd like this, and say, sorry, that's not even enough to make us hungry. Forget about filling us up. But God sees what we make available, and he multiplies it when we make it available. Ananias, yes, Lord, here am I. Number one, you're making a list, right? Put it on your list. Be available. Be available, that's where it starts. Number two, put this on your list. Listen for instructions. God speaks. Verse 11 says, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus' name. So I gave him an address, an address, a location, a person, a name. Behold, here's what he's doing. He's praying and he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. You, come in and do something specific. Lay his hand on him that he might do something specific, regain his sight. Instructions. Rather specific instructions. I mean, look, God has a, a will that's as big as the universe. And, and God is sovereign and he has plans, yes, for all of that. But I want you to notice how very specific and personal God is in giving instructions to this everyday ordinary disciple named Ananias in a place called Damascus. Very specific. Very intentional. Here's what I want you to do. Many of us may think that God sort of has this general will, but God's given us all this free room to roam in the midst of God's will. But can I just tell you that if in fact God is sovereign, and God does have plans and purposes, that He does in fact work through us, then God will be actually rather specific at times about what it is He wants us to do. And some people say, well, look, God does not, I, how, oh my goodness. Like the little boy, his mom was teaching him about prayer. He said, it's a conversation. You know, you speak to God and then you listen and God speaks back to you. It's the first time the boy had ever heard that. It was crazy to him. He went in his room that night. He got down on his knees in front of his bed. He prayed in a dark room. He said, dear God, if that's true, please don't speak out loud. You will scare me to death. Some people don't think God speaks or that if God speaks, he wouldn't speak to me. And if he speaks to me, he wouldn't be specific in giving me any instructions. He, he wouldn't tell me what to do. Oh, I beg to differ. He will. In fact, I would suggest he already is. And it's logical that he would. Now, let me say faith is not illogical, but let me make this very logical for us. Let's have a Q&A. I want to ask you a question and, and I want you to answer me. Does God have a will God has a will. Of course he is. God's not unopinionated. God's not like, whatever. No, God's pretty, God has a will. Would you agree, say yes if you do, that God not only has a will, but that he has plans and purposes that he is working his will towards accomplishing? Say yes. Okay, so that's logical. Now, thirdly, in all that you've read in the Bible and all that you know and what you've experienced, through your keen observation, would you agree, say yes if so, that God uses people to accomplish his will through the plans and purposes he has for them. Does God use people? Yes. 
Yes, of course he does. Now, you say, well, God doesn't need people. I don't know if he needs them or not. That's irrelevant. He chooses to use people, right? I mean, that's the point. He, his, his ordained process of getting things done is to do it through people. Now, let's stay logical here for just a moment. Would it seem logical to you that the God who has a will, who has plans and purposes to use people to accomplish his will, would not be willing to tell us his will, but instead keep us in the dark and yet hold us accountable to doing his will? Does that seem logical to you? Or does it make perfect sense that the God who has a will and plans and purposes to use people would tell us what that will is and reveal to us what his plans and purposes are so that we can obey him. It's just logical. But how in the world could we obey a God who doesn't tell us what to do? So, God gives instructions. He leads us, he guides us, he speaks to us. Of course, he speaks through his word. He speaks in that still, small voice by his spirit. He speaks through sometimes teachers and preachers of the word. He speaks through the circumstances of our life that he orchestrates. He speaks through our conversations with parents or mentors or loved ones. He speaks. The question is not, does God speak? The question is not, does God instruct? The question is not, does God guide us to do things in response to his revelation? The question is, are we listening? The question is, are we seeking to know God's will and His plans and purposes and what our part in that is? The Ananias is just a small bit character, a minor character in this great story. But you see, God speaks to Ananias, and in specificity, here's where I want you to go. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to say, and here's what's going to happen next. The question is not, does God speak? The question is, is are we listening? The question is, are we available? I want to just tell you about this card as you commit this to prayer every day this week. I want to ask you to go before the Lord and simply say, whatever you're feeling, whatever your opinions are, whatever you think of me for asking you to do it, I'm just asking you to try this. Just go before the Lord and simply say, Lord, I'm here. I'm available. And I want to ask you, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's my part? And then here's what I want you to do. Listen. And I suppose, like you, that little boy, if you heard the audible voice of God, that, that may not accomplish anything except uh, something scary. But trust me, God speaks. You know that he does. You have to know that he does. It makes all the sense in the world that he would. And not to your exception. Not just to everyone else, somebody else, anybody else. But I, if I could come to every one of you, look you in the eye, hold your cheeks, pull you close, and say this. You are the only one of you in the whole history of the world. God made you, has a will, a plan, and a purpose to include you, to use you. So listen to what he says when he tells you what his plans and purposes are. And listen. Number one, availability. You got to be available. That's where it all starts. Number two, listen because God speaks. And number three, yes, you'll have to face your fear with faith. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. 
Now, as if God speaking to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, isn't enough, what God had to say to Ananias would do it. (laughs) I mean, it would have made sense if God had said, hey, Ananias, Saul's in town. Run. Right? Saul of Tarsus, the destroyer of the church, the persecutor of Christians, is in your neighborhood. Get out of there. I mean, lock up the house, gather your possessions, get what you can, carry what you will, and just get away. Get out. That would have made sense. Ananias said, got it, gone. Perfect sense. But instead, what God says is, the guy who came to lay hands on you to tear you down and destroy you, I want you to go find that guy. And I want you to go in the house where that guy is. And I want you to put your hands on him and bless him and pray for him and over him that he might have his sight back so that when he sees you, there is no escape. Ananias' response is a simple recitation. It's just a rehearsing of what he knew to be true of Saul of Tarsus. And his fears were very well founded. This was risky business. Now some people think that when they say, yes, Lord, I'm available, and God begins to speak, that what God has to say is solely for my comfort and for my convenience. Just to assure me and reassure me and to make me feel better about myself. The sum total of God's instructions to me are just love me and just be me and don't worry. God is the God of all comfort. That is true. But God is not the God of the all comfortable. Can I just, can we listen carefully? Let me just get real with you. God is not interested in making us comfortable. God is in the business of making us conformable. So God will, in fact, call us out of our comfort zone. You can count on it. God will cause us to stretch, to reach. You can count on it. The Bible says in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if it makes sense to us and we don't need God to see it or to do it, then it wasn't God who asked us to do it. Because God's never going to give us something we can do without Him. He's only going to call us to do what we need Him to get done. And that gap right there is where fear can fill or faith can fill. You say, well, I'm afraid of God's will. I'm... Listen, if you're, afraid, if you're afraid of God's will, it's only because you don't know God. God is good. And He is a good, good Father. God will never ask you, call you, or tell you to do anything that ultimately won't be a blessing to you and for His honor and glory. You just have to trust that. But your fear will say no. I mean, that initial welling up of fear and trepidation, that concern, that worry, that may be well-founded because it is risky business to get up out of the status quo and to move beyond your comfort zone and to stretch into something you've never seen, been touched, or done before. You don't know the outcome. That's why faith is necessary. In the absence of faith, there is fear. 
I know that commitment can be scary. I know that's why some people won't wear one of these because they're afraid of commitment. I know some people won't do one of these because they're afraid. They're afraid. It's fear. And I'm not saying that's unfounded fear. I'm not. It's not whether or not you are afraid or have fear. It's what you do next that either keeps you where you are or lets you go where you need to be. You make that decision to face your fear with faith. See, they really don't work well together. You either faith or you fear. You either fear or you faith. But faith can overcome fear if you know the one who's asking you to face it. Let me try it this way. Let me come over here, guys. Do any of you fellas, girls, do y'all remember learning to swim? Do you? I taught all three of my children to swim. It was a privilege. And we started the same way probably that many of you did. We started just splashing around the water on the steps where it's real shallow, just having fun in the water. And then we practiced splashing a little water on our face, and that way we laughed, fun. Ha, 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 and this fun, splash, 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 daddy, you know, the whole thing. And then, and then we practiced blowing bubbles in the water. You know, like put your face in and, and blow and, and scream really loud. And they did that. I was having so much fun. But every little step was purposeful. You with me? Every little action that I asked them to take was intentional. Finally, they were so comfortable splashing and playing in the water that they would go off a little bit to the side of the steps, hang onto the wall, and kick their feet and make big splashes with their feet. Big motorboat splashes. That's called a flutter kick. And then we'd push back from the wall and holding onto the wall, we'd dip our head down in the water. Do our head down. Blow bubbles. Good. Lift up. Blow bubbles. Kick and blow. Kick and blow. Good, 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 good. And finally, finally, they'd push off from the wall and kick back to it with their face underwater. That was scary. Because always before, feet are on the steps or hands are on the wall. Death grip. And now dad's asking me to let go and kick back to the wall. And I have my hand under their belly. I'm right here. Trust me. I'm right. I got you. I got you. Give it a try. It's going to be fun. You're going to let me show you. And I do it. And then they, and finally, there they go. But then comes the big test. Stand on the side, toes over the edge. Now that you know how to hold your breath and blow bubbles and kick your feet and glide across the water, I want you to jump. <laughs> no. Daddy's crazy. I am not. I can't swim. I am not jumping in that pool. And, and I said, oh, I, yes, you actually, you can. I've taught you. You didn't know what we were doing, but every little step was intentional to teach you to be prepared for this moment. You can swim, but you're going to have to jump to Prove it to yourself. I know you can swim. Because I've given everything you need. <laughs> Are you sure you'll catch me? Yes, I'm here. This could go on for days. Because this, this is a battle. You see what's happening? This is a battle. 
I'm afraid, and I'm not minimizing the fear. It's real. It's gripping. It can be paralyzing. But let me tell you what else it can do. It can keep you standing there on the side, never really knowing what you're actually able to do. And therefore, never going into the pool, never swimming, never having that freedom or that joy, because you just wouldn't face your fear with faith. The question is, can I trust my daddy? The question is not, is it dangerous? The question is not, could I drown? The question is not, might I fail or be embarrassed? The question is, is my dad faithful? Is he going to catch me when I jump? And in that moment, if I choose faith in the one I know over fear that I feel, I'm wet now. And I'm having a marvelous time, and the water's fine. (laughs) Maybe I overdid that. (laughs) Or maybe, just maybe, kids aren't the only one that have to learn that lesson eventually. Maybe sometimes we grown-ups who've been swimming for years have to learn again how to Trust our Father more than our fear and faith the step. Be available. Listen for instructions. Face your fear quickly. Two more. Trust. Isn't that it? Trust God's plan. You know he has one. He's God. Verse 15 says, but the Lord said to him, go. Listen, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. It's the plan of the ages Here's God's redemptive plan of salvation for all of humanity. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'll show him, don't you worry, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias said, though it's not in the text, well, I'm glad at least he's going to suffer some. Because he sure has earned it. I love God's response here to... Ananias' objection, his fear. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, Ananias? You're right, never mind. He is a bad guy, I forgot about that. This is dangerous, that slipped my mind. He doesn't say, I tell you what, since this makes you so uncomfortable and it's so inconvenient for you, I'll tell you what, I'll send somebody else who's more qualified, who's better prepared, who has less to risk than you do. Let me send somebody else. Doesn't say that. In fact, he says, go. Because I got all that. And then he does a wonderful thing for Ananias. He starts to tell him what he's going into, what he's becoming a part of. And in the revealing of this greater plan and this greater event, this bigger thing that God's doing, what he's doing is he's letting Ananias know, hey, I know this is risky, and I know you're not qualified or prepared, and I know you're not like so excited to go put your life at risk here and in jeopardy. But let me tell you something. Really, Ananias, this isn't about you. Really, Ananias, this isn't even about Saul or Paul. This is about me, God says. This is about me and my plan and my purpose. And oh yes, I'm inviting you into it. So what Ananias thought was a terrible interruption that he would love to have said no to is actually God's invitation. His invitation. Ananias, hey bud. 
Do you see what's happening here? I am writing you into this grand meta-narrative, the redemptive plan of the ages, the story of Genesis to Revelation with Jesus right in the middle. Just like Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, or Peter, James, and John, and any other great somebody you've ever heard of, including the great Billy Graham, I'm about to write your name into my story. Ananias is being included, don't you see? A disciple from Damascus in an eternal plan. And all he has to do, listen to me carefully, all he has to do is what only he can do. That's all he has to do. Doesn't have to be Saul or Paul. Doesn't have to become Peter. He just has to do what God called Ananias to do. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just that. It just comes down to trust. I want to say to you, and I think this is the last thing I'll say about this card, but I really want you to get this. We have said for over a year now that multiply is not about what your church wants from you, but what God has for you. I believe with all my heart as a pastor and as a person that God has more for you and me than we know or have already experienced. It's for us. God is good and he longs and wants for us to fully experience all of these things. But fear will keep us on the deck and out of the water. And will also deprive us of the many wonderful and good things God has for us. But God's plan, listen to me carefully, is not to do what God's going to do without us or in spite of us. Listen carefully, God's plan is to do it through us. You can say, but that's not much, and I don't have much, and I'm not much, and I don't even know who I am or what I'm doing here or what this is all about. Listen to me. You're the only you they'll ever be, which means you're the only one who can ever do what only you can do. Just you. But that something is all that matters when God calls your name. Because God is writing that something into his eternal plan of redemption. Trust God's plan, and finally, you got to do it, right? You just got to do it. At some point, you got to walk in obedience. Verse 17, I love this. So, this is a word, it's in the text. So, what did he do? He did it. He departed, he entered the house, he laid his hands on him, he prayed over him. He regained his sight, Paul did. He rose, was baptized, took food, and he was strengthened. I love the word so. That's the lead into the invitation, by the way. What are you going to do, so? I mean, yes, Lord, I'm here. What's that, Lord? Oh, my goodness, that terrifies me. But, Lord, I choose faith because I know you have a plan and a purpose, and I want to be a part of that, whatever my part is. So here I go. Yes, Lord. And then he acted. That's all we know about Ananias. We don't hear from him again. He's gone, except that here we are 2,000 years later telling and celebrating his story of obedience. It's incredible that he was never to be a Paul. But would there have been a Paul without an obedient Ananias? I suppose that's a theological debate for another day. But I will say this. Ananias would never be an Ananias. 
if Ananias hadn't been obedient to the Lord. So whatever it is that God would or wouldn't have done with or without Ananias, Ananias is the one who stood in his place to play his part in God's enormous, wonderful plan of salvation, and we're still talking about it. And there'll never be a debate on the impact and the difference of Ananias' life or in the world or in human history or in the church. And here we are, aren't we, here? And he's in our story. Surely as God wants to write us into his. And no, you can't be someone else or play someone else's part. You leave that to them and God. All you got to do is what only you can do. All we ever have to do is what only we can and should do. It's not the size. It's not the quantity. It's not the quality. It's the availability. Because what we make available to God, he multiplies. That's what the Lord of the harvest does. When it's sown in good soil, in faith. You've probably never heard of Edward Kimball. I doubt you have. He was a Sunday school teacher and had a real heart and a burden for children and teenage boys who, who had to go to work in a tough time and didn't have the privilege of school or learning and certainly through a hard life working so much they didn't even go to church. So he, he had a Sunday school class to reach these boys. And one of the boys he really invested in was a little kid named D.L. Moody. He wrote a little paragraph, and it's in Moody's book, that says he'd never seen a darker kid with a darker mind or heart than this Moody kid. He worked in a shoe store for his uncle, and his uncle required as a, as a condition of his employment that he go to this Sunday school class, and they built a relationship, and they became friends. And one day in the shoe store, Kimball led D.L. Moody to the Lord. Moody became a theologian, a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, preached in continents, preached in America, he preached in Europe, in Britain. He, he met a man there and led him to the Lord named F.B. Meyer, who came to the States and met a man and led him to the Lord named Wilbur Chapman, who became Moody's co-worker and won somebody to the Lord and hired him as an assistant named Billy Sunday, who went as an evangelist and preached in Charlotte, North Carolina and established the Christian Businessmen's Club that invited another evangelist named Mordecai Hand to come to Charlotte and preach tent meetings around the rural areas of Charlotte. And one of those tent meetings on one particular, no other name, who else cares, night of the week, a teenager sitting in the back of the room heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus. And that teenager's name was Billy Graham. And everybody's heard of Billy Graham. He's had a worldwide ministry and impacted millions of people. Some of us in this room would say, Billy Graham was instrumental in me coming to faith. You never heard of Edward Kimball until now, maybe. And let me tell you something as I look over here at these adult heads popping up out of these kids' sections, I see an awful lot of Edward Kimballs. It may never be Billy Graham, but you don't have to be. There's only one of them. All you got to be is who you are, and all you got to do is what God's called you to do. And that's all that matters. And so do all of us. It starts with availability, doesn't it? Yes, Lord. What is it you want me to do, Lord? What's my part? What can I do? Lord, that scares me to death. I don't know if I can do that. To which he would say, then you know it's me. Trust me. Don't give in to your fears. Faith. And step out in action. 
This is not just about money, folks. We're talking time, talents, and treasure. The Holy Spirit will apply these truths in any area of your life where you're still standing on the edge of the pool saying, I can't. But certainly for this next week, would you commit with me today just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? Help me to do it. And pray for everyone else, too, that we'd all have that experience with the Lord. I want it for you. I long for you to have all God has for you. And for many of us, this really is a part of that. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.